The scripture this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome those of you joining us online and here in person. My name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here. And uh, what a privilege it is to walk through our psalm series, Honest to God, these honest prayers lifted up to God, most of it uh, from King David's perspective, and it's no different in Psalm 20. And we get to come to him uh, with our true selves to explore what it means when we are in under pressure, uh, when it feels like the world is against us, or we feel like we're in distress. And Psalm 20 is no different. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we receive his word. God, we are thankful for the grace you've given us, the goodness of your, um, the work of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your spirit in here. And I pray, whether it be the first time uh, or the hundredth time we come here or the thousandth time we've opened your word, may your Holy Spirit open our eyes, open our hearts to receive the truth that only is given uh, by your word. Uh, may it illuminate our hearts, may it open our eyes, may it show us what it means to follow you in the fullness that you've called us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1950s, uh, there was a swimmer named Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick, she was a very well-known swimmer. She would go on to swim the English Channel. Uh, she would these open water swims. And she took in, uh, on a challenge in 1956, 1956, at 38 years old, uh, she took on the challenge to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. It was a swim of about 26 miles, a 26-mile journey. Uh, it was a very difficult journey as she swam because there would be sharks. So she had a boat with her that would um, ward off the sharks. Uh, I don't know how they did that. Uh, and as she embarked on this journey, she started swimming, and she started getting into it. Uh, and, and almost as she was going, that thick California fog started settling in and uh, kind of uh, preventing anyone to see so much that she couldn't even sometimes see the boat uh, next to her as she was swimming. After 15 hours, she was exhausted. Uh, she felt defeated, and all she could see was this fog around her, and she swam another hour, and eventually she said she couldn't make it, and she gave up. And the boat came up as she blew the whistle. They put her on the boat, and as the fog slowly dissipated, she could see that she was just barely... Uh, a part away from the California coastline. She was just right there. Uh, a few months later, she got back in the waters again. Uh, same situation, the fog came in and she started swimming. Uh, and this time she reached it uh, to the coastline. An interview later, they asked her, you know, what, what was different? What made you go? And she says, you know, she quit looking with what she could see with her eyes. Uh, and she just had a mental image of that coastline 
achieving her goal. For some of us, I think so often we can get overwhelmed. We can feel like there's things surrounding us that we can't see beyond. And what our eyes fixate on is just the things around us that we know we're swimming towards, we're going towards where the Lord has led, led us, but sometimes it feels like the fog is just too thick. It's overwhelming. And the question we have to pose is, what do we have our eyes fixed on? What do we trust in? What do we stand on in those moments? King David was no different. And in Psalm 20, that is the very question that is being exposed. Who do you trust when it feels like everything around you is surrounding you, when it feels like nothing is dissipating, it feels like everything around is suffocating you, where do you put your trust? And that's what David, our king, addresses. He leads us through the psalm, this prayer, towards one full of trust and confidence that we can go to the Lord, we can fix our eyes on him because we know he is sure that we will stand upon him and everything will be the way it was meant to be. Psalm 20 is framed in this way. that is this ah psalm 20 king david frames it in this way he frames it the prayers of the people this communal prayer second part is the declaration of the king and finally he leads us to a confident community so first the prayers of the people second the declaration of the king and finally the confidence the confident community that emerges. First, the prayers of the people. Psalm 20 is considered by scholars as a royal psalm, a collection of psalms throughout the book that has common references to uh, the role of the Israelite monarchy that focuses on the monarchy, the king, kingship of Israel. And these royal psalms were most likely used in liturgical settings like public worship, much like you and I today. These were read aloud in a way to inspire, to move the people. Many of these prayers were incorporated by the people during celebrations, commemorations, and intercession for the king. And Psalm 20 in particular is built around a time when the king prepares for battle. Unlike today, it was very customary for the king in the ancient world would go forth in a certain season to battle. They would go and fight their enemies, and the king would lead the charge, very unlike today. And King David was no different. He would take charge and lead his people, his men, into battle. John Calvin, the great reformer, notes about this psalm in particular. He says, while it was written in the context of David toward a particular battle, later it was used in more of a general, any kind of battle, any preparation. And eventually the Israelites began to use it, the Psalm 20, as they face any kind of threatening danger around them. Anything that felt like was overwhelming them, Psalm 20 would be a reference point, much like for us today. And Psalm 20 structure, it begins with this kind of, uh, kind of these hopeful prayers to God, may you, and it's always spoken from the first person plural. That's how we know it's a communal prayer. It's they're praying on behalf of the king, the second person singular to David in this case, the people of God praying for the anointed king as he goes forth. The people of God are preparing for David, at, praying for David as he prepares and goes to battle. And focus on the verbs you see in the first five verses. They appeal to God. They ask God for, to answer and protect, to help and to support, to remember the sacrifice and accept them 
to make them acceptable, to give the desires of their heart and to make their plan successful. These are the prayers that these people of God are praying on behalf of David. But these are not unfamiliar prayers to us. I would imagine these are all prayers that we have at one point or another lifted up to God on our own behalf. And even if you don't come from a a Christian background, uh, maybe they didn't look like prayers, but these are thoughts you've had, appeals uh, for support and answer and success. And these are all prayers even from a Christian background we've lifted up to the Lord. But the difference is that these prayers from the people are lifted up not on behalf of themselves, but for their anointed king. Unlike us, they understood this important distinction that their own protection, their own support, their own ultimate success was directly tied to the success and failure of their king in battle. That their own success and their own protection, their own support was directly linked to the success or failure of their king in battle. Before moving to Charlotte last year, I lived in Detroit for seven years prior coming. And at being a sports fan, uh, you kind of, uh, you get involved in whatever is around, you know, whatever you see constantly, uh, whatever event, whatever sporting events you go to, you start slowly building allegiance to it. And I say slowly and painfully, uh, I slowly became a Detroit Lions fan. And you understand, if you know the football, the Lions are notoriously awful. They've never made the Super Bowl. Uh, they just seem like they lose uh, over and over, blunder after blunder. So it was very painful that I started cheering for them uh, as a Lions fan. But after seven years, we moved to Charlotte. I've been here about a year, uh, and, or a year exactly. And I slowly, as I began to watch Panthers games, started cheering for them and uh, started getting more allegiance toward the Panthers. And I would assume the longer I'm here, the more I would be. Uh, excited about being a Panthers fan, hopefully a little better than the Lions. Uh, but I believe, you know, after coming here, as my allegiance has shifted in sports, some of you may think otherwise, but I don't believe that uh, somebody from Detroit is going to come down and threaten me with my life. How dare you switch allegiances? Uh, now, Detroit has a bad reputation, but for sports, I think Philadelphia and Boston is probably worse. Uh, they may come and threaten my life, but no one's going to do that, right? No one's going to be like, how dare you change teams? How dare you switch allegiances? Now, when we do so, disappointment, frustration, and sometimes consequences, but rarely does our livelihood or our lives are at risk because of a certain affiliation's victory or loss. I'll say that again. Disappointment, frustration, and sometimes consequences, uh, but our livelihoods and lives are rarely at risk because of a certain affiliation's victory or loss. But this was not the case in the ancient world. This is not the case of the prayers of the people. This was not the case for the Israelites. Every time their king went to battle, their very lives were at risk. Every time the king led his army into battle, they knew the people's lives were at risk because they were so tied to how the king did. If they failed, their lives would be put on the line. So these prayers, even as we read them, have a measure of trepidation. But what about for us today? How do we see these prayers as they're lifted up? See, as they're praying for their king, they're not sure how he's going to do. But for us, in this light, looking back, we have true confidence in a true king who has gone before us, 
who has conquered all his and our enemies, one greater than David, the king of kings, the very focal point of why we gather in King Jesus. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. We don't lift these prayers up in hope of what the king could do. We lift these prayers up in knowing and having full confidence in what he has done and will do. King Jesus is so much greater than any king in the ancient world or in a current world that goes in with the uncertainty of how things will come about, but with the full confidence that we have a true king who goes before us. For if God is for us, who can be against us? We don't worry because our king has already gone to battle on our behalf and achieved victory for us all. He has defeated death and conquered sin on the cross for us. Which leads us to the second frame And it's just one verse in six. The narrative changes to a singular person and it's declared as this. Now this I know, that confidence, that certitude, this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. One verse. A a distinctive voice breaks through those communal prayers of hope And the Hebrew grammar and how it expresses now this I know is not just a transitional statement. It is the absolute certainty of foundational knowledge, full understanding. No, this is the one point that's saying, I know this. The king declares, I know this to be true. And how does he know it? He calls upon in the previous verses that God of Jacob, the covenant God, the God of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has fulfilled the promises, who's carried out the promises of deliverance and hope. And he calls upon him, and he uses this word, Hebrew word, Yahshua, which here is translated victory. But we all know elsewhere it's translated rescue or salvation. And he says this Hebrew God, this God of all gods, has brought salvation to his anointed or Messiah. And the God answers from a place not of this world, but a kingdom where his rule is absolute and benevolent. And how does he do it? but with the salvific power, with the victorious power, with the salvation power of his right hand. And it's a symbol of the king's power. In the ancient world, the right hand of the king is where authority and power and influence lie. And from there extends forth through the Messiah, salvation for his people. The image we see is God on his heavenly throne, extending his power and authority to bring salvation through the anointed the Messiah. The image is not framed in wishful thinking, but a picture of certainty. Now this I know. In our world, we're always searching for what we know to be true. Absolute certainty. It's been searching for decades and hundreds and thousands of years. In 1946, philosopher Paul Weiss wrote this article uh, called The Quest for Certainty in the Philosophy Review the quest for certainty. And in the beginning, he talks about philosophy, this pursuit of knowledge. He says this, philosophy is a quest for certainty. It seeks ultimate truth and reality, which cannot possibly be rejected and enjoys them with a confidence nothing can weaken. It strives for a perpetual feast of nectar sweets where no crude surfeit reigns. He's talking about this confidence that we can be searching. It says philosophy is the key in this quest for certainty. He contrasts that to subjective certainty that we all fall into sometimes by just believing without examining the things of this world. And while he asserts that philosophical truth could be certain, he has to limit it. 
He has to limit to real men in a real universe, he says. To think beyond it, he can't get certainty right. So he limits it to this finite world. And while we may and would and should disagree with Weiss in the conclusion, we understand his premise. We get his premise, right? This idea of certainty, these ultimate truths and realities which cannot possibly be rejected and that we can enjoy them with the confidence that nothing can be weakened. Because we understand beyond the finite, the limit of what we can see, we see beyond that. And that's why we can stand with absolute certainty this, the covenant God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who promises life and life to the full to us, has entered into our world, breaking the limitations of our finite world, extending his right hand to his kingdom on earth to make it the way it's always meant to be, the way it is in heaven. And all through this, the promised Messiah, Jesus, to bring good news of salvation to his people. This I know. This is the declaration. And we can have this ultimate truth and reality which possibly cannot be rejected, and we can enjoy them with a confidence that cannot be weakened. This is us. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We can declare it along with the king, for he's declared it over us. But salvation has come, not by our own efforts, but only by the Messiah, King Jesus. And because of that good news, we can lead into what it means to be a community of confidence, a confident community. This is my PowerPoint errors again. But it goes through verse 7 through 9, the confident community that we see. It says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Coming back to the community, the speaker shifts uh, to a communal perspective in verses 7 through 9. And the community affirms the confidence they have back in their king. They look back to verse 6, and they say, this is the confidence we have moving forward. One of the courses I took as a history major, and I say that always uh, a little trepidation, uh, because they were like, people start telling me history things or asking me questions, and I don't really know a lot of them. Uh, I basically just graduated because Aaron said she didn't want to marry a college dropout. Uh, I thought I was going to ministry. He's like, who needs school? Everyone needs school. Students, you need to go to school. Uh, but I did major in history, and one of the classes I took was medieval warfare, which is interesting, right? Uh, and one of the things I learned was it, it's rarely, and most of the time it's this way, but it's not always the case that if you have the largest or the most powerful military force, uh, that you're always guaranteed victory. A lot of the times what shifts in history is uh, just another group comes with like a little innovation or something new that they're not really ready for, and it would just wreck the rest of the world. The Mongols, right, the Mongol Empire, they uh, destroyed most, not destroyed, conquered a lot of Asia and all the way up to almost Europe, and the technology they used uh, was that, hey, they could ride horses and they could shoot a bow and arrow at the same time. And everyone's like, what's going on? And they just wrecked everyone around. Uh, the Spanish Armada called the Invincible Armada, invincible gathering of these ships that really gained a power for the Spanish Empire was destroyed by the English because they said, you know what, we're just going to develop these like, long-range cannons because every time we get close, we lose. And it just demolished the Spanish Armada. These uh, latest military advances really give you an upper hand. These are the advantages 
that really sets things apart. In the ancient world, it was chariots and horses. These were the military advantages that gave them the upper hand against who they were fighting. But we, the people, we don't look to them in battle. We don't trust in those things. We trust in the Lord, our God. And while Psalm 20 is specifically addressing a military excursion, Calvin once again reminds us it's about all the struggles, all the hardships that we may face in our lives. So the question for us today is this. Are we, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you part of the some or are you part of the we? The some who trust in what they can see with their own eyes, what they can hold, what they can create, what they can gain advantage of, what they can leverage, or the we who trust in the eternal king who holds all things and sustains all things. The some are swayed by how many points the stock market goes up and down. The some are rattled by which political seats are won or lost. The some who default to anxiety because of the state of our world and culture or the we who stand firm in the promise that all things will be made right, the we who have confidence in the name of Jesus over our very souls, the we who worship in truth and grace. That's the question. Some are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. The Lord gives victory. Our God is not a passive God who uh, doesn't know how the story will be written. He is the author and reigns over all in sovereignty. We, by grace, have enlightened eyes that we get to see through Scripture how the story will end. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's given us the ending of the story. All things will be made anew. All the broken relationships, all the hardships, all the tears will be made right. And King Jesus will reign in an eternal kingdom. He's given us a peek into how the story will end. The challenge for us is when the storms of life, when the fog comes in and it feels like you can't see anything besides what's right in front of you, who do you trust in? What do your eyes fixate upon? Do we trust in what our hands can do or do we trust in King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? See, everything in our world, the sin in our hearts, the temptations of the world try to lure our very souls towards the chariots, towards the horses, towards the money, towards the grades, towards the prestige, towards that candidate, towards the agenda. But we, we the people of God, trust in the name of our Lord, our God, the true King of kings who reigns forevermore, who will make all things the way it was always meant to be. And we get to be a part of that. For we don't trust in those things out there. We trust in our good God, his holy name, and the one who comes to rectify all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are forever grateful of the magnificent song of grace you preach over us. Through your word, you give us the gospel, the good news that not by our own works, but only by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, who lived that perfect life. And Father, in return, took our sins and took it to the cross. 
and you have given us the privilege of being called a son or daughter. And by your Holy Spirit, you've empowered us, transformed us, shaped us and called us and lifted us to stand firm in that beautiful, uh, beautiful narrative, beautiful story that will come to completion, that our eyes are on the true King. And the only name that we worship is King Jesus, the King of Kings. Father, we are grateful and we lift these prayers up to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.